They call the generation that grew up in and fought in World War I the Lost Generation. The writer most frequently identified as part of this generation, Ernest Hemingway, picked up the term from fellow author Gertrude Stein, who said to Hemingway, All of you young people who served in the war, you are all a lost generation. Writers, poets, artists, musicians all commented on the disillusionment their generation felt following World War I. With so much carnage and death, it was hard to think about what should come next. Not when they were still processing all they had witnessed on the battlefields. Hemingway and Stein, along with other notables like F. Scott Fitzgerald and T.S. Eliot, all hung out in the Montparnasse neighborhood in Paris, getting their inspiration while hanging out in cafes like the famed Café Coupeau. La Café Coupeau was built around 1927 and immediately attracted the world's greatest thinkers, everyone from Josephine Baker and Simone de Beauvoir to Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. Pablo Picasso frequented the café, as did Salvador Dali and Marc Chagall. A lost generation met in the cafés of Paris, trying to make sense of their world and their place in it. But what of the Paris that was never made into bestsellers? What of the Parisians who could not call themselves lost because there was never a point in time in which they were seen? On the evening of August 22, 1933, a young girl, decked in the period's most fashionable clothes, met her friend at the famed La Café Coupeau. The day before, the girl was no one. In a month, she would be the most famous woman in France. On August 21st, as she did her best to fit into the Grand Café of Hemingway, Stein, and Camus, the girl was simply Violette Nozier. Violette was not a part of the lost generation, because she was not lost. How could she be when she had never once been seen? Girls like her mattered to no one. The lost generation might have been lucky enough to get rid of their demons by putting pen to paper, but Violette was not that educated and she had never been lucky. No one would listen to her unless she made them pay attention. Violette finished her hot chocolate at La Café Coupeau and then left with her friend for a night on the town. She returned home at around 1 a.m. and then ran screaming to her neighbors that her parents had killed themselves. She knew they had not, though, for she was the one who poisoned them. This is the Historical True Crime Podcast, Old Blood. I'm your host, Elise. Violette Nozier came from a working-class family and lived on the top floor of an apartment building in the 12th arrondissement. Her father, Baptiste Nozier, like most of the other men in the building, worked for the PLM, the Paris-Lyon-Marseille Railway, 
Though Baptiste came from nothing, having been born and raised in the countryside in extreme poverty, his job with the PLM brought him security, and work as an engine driver was relatively well paid. Her mom, born Germaine Hazard, was also from the countryside in Neuvy, in a village about 100 miles south of Paris. She had been married before, then divorced, then remarried to Baptiste in 1913. She was four months pregnant when they married, which was more common at this time and place than you would think, particularly when the couple was clearly headed for marriage anyway. Violette was born on January 11, 1915. She was breastfed until she was two and then began primary school, just like the other girls of her background. The Nosiers were typical of Parisian working-class families at this time because they were doing well enough to put some money away for their child's future. Like most other working-class families, the Nosiers had only one child in whom they placed their hopes and dreams, and savings. For girls like Violette, the hope was that after primary school they would go to a good, higher primary school, which would prepare them for a career as an office worker, like a secretary of some sort. Girls who were extra lucky could afford a dowry to marry up, so to speak. Violette was a healthy, well-adjusted girl until she hit puberty. She got her first period when she was 12, and it all seemed to go downhill from there. Because her periods were so heavy, she was diagnosed with anemia and then offered suffered from fainting spells. Then the other health conditions followed. She got frequent sinus infections and stomach aches, so much so that she was forced to repeat a year in school. Her behavior began to change as well. Some teachers wrote of her as an average student, but others condemned her for being... Quote, lazy, devious, hypocritical, vain, avoids work, questionable behavior, end quote. Another complained that she frequented the boys at a nearby school too often, which was the source of her problems. Given her behavior, most believed her health issues to be psychosomatic, a convenient excuse for Violette whenever she didn't want to do something. Her parents removed her from the school and enrolled her in one closer, but the classes were taught at a boys' school, and she got into trouble there, too. She got her first boyfriend when she was 16, and then when they broke up, she dated a classmate's older brother, a bourgeois med student named Pierre Camus. Because of her frequent absences at school due to health problems and ditching, she was advised to drop out. Her parents then enrolled her in one of Paris's best schools for girls, Lycée Fenelon. It was located in the Latin Quarter, a neighborhood in Paris known for its association with the schools. It was like a university town, essentially, and it was where Violette could get into a ton of trouble. At 17, she ran around the Latin Quarter with her friends instead of attending school, and by the end of 1932, she had been caught stealing a book. Violette had also gained a reputation as a vicieuse, a girl too interested in sex. 
The young bourgeois men from the Latin Quarter that she hung out with liked her well enough, but didn't exactly take her seriously. One pal, Roger Andewell, called Violette a good egg and described her as stunning, yet her other friends, Amy Tessier, Georges Legrand, and Bernard Pyborg, did not. Violette had begun to see Jean Leblanc, another member of the friend circle, but Leblanc described Violette as a, quote, bizarre girl who mostly needed to brag and spin unbelievable yarns, end quote. If there was one thing Violette was known for, it was her fibbing. She loved to create dramatic stories about her life in her head and then tell people about them as if they were real. In her mind, her father was an engineer, or a railway executive, and she had a rich aunt who lived at the Ambassador Hotel. In her mind and in her tall tales, Violette's parents had set aside a dowry of 180,000 francs for her. In reality, the sum was the total of her parents' life savings. Family arguments were the norm particularly with her failing in school again. She was never a great match for the school to begin with, and her ditching and frequent absences, due to her illnesses, were only making the situation worse. On December 17th, Violette's parents discovered a suicide note she left behind. She said that she was going to throw herself into the River Seine so that she could finally be free. She wrote that by 4 p.m. that afternoon, she would be dead. Her parents tore through the city searching for her, only to run into her walking down the street with her friends. Her parents realized the need for change and decided it would be better to put her in a correspondence school so that Violette could stay at home under her mother's supervision. The problem was that Violette had not just one— not two, but three separate lives she was living. It seemed that no one who knew Violette knew all there was to know about her. At home in the 12th arrondissement, Violette was a daughter. In the Latin Quarter, she was a schoolgirl, eager to soak up all that 1930s Paris had to offer its young students. But on the right bank of the Seine, Violette was a woman. Historian Sarah Maza's book on Violette Nozier is the main source for this episode, seeing as the other reliable sources are all in French and the English-speaking world apparently doesn't like to talk about Violette. Anyway, Maza wrote that Violette created a new identity for herself, quote, that of an elegant, sexually available woman of mystery in the wealthy commercial districts on the right bank of the Seine. End quote. Plenty have called her a prostitute, but this isn't exactly accurate for several reasons. She did not sleep with all the men she met, and not all the men she met and slept with gave her money. Whatever she was doing on the other side of Paris, she wasn't in it for the money alone. She sure knew how to go about getting the money, though. One of the men she met with, a Tunisian electrical engineer named Mahmoud Adari, recalled Violette and the many wild stories she told him. 
Once, she was all upset because her father had died. And not just that, but she found out that he had a mistress who happened to run up a 3,000 franc debt for a fur stole she wanted. Violette told Adari that her mom would die of grief if she found out, and asked if he could help her with the money. Sarah Maza notes that changing times allowed Violette to do this. She lived in Paris at a time when it was becoming possible for women like her to feign a higher social status. Owing to the popularity of designers like Coco Chanel, the bourgeoisie were sporting simpler styles, or what Maza called pared-down elegance, that was easier for lower classes to imitate. As 1933 continued, so did Violette's troubles. By March, her parents had taken her out of the school in the Latin Quarter and kept her at home under her mother's constant supervision. Again, Violette's various illnesses returned and worsened the longer she was kept at home. On March 23rd, Violette visited a pharmacy and purchased Veronal, a barbiturate that helps people get to sleep. She returned to the Nozier apartment with three packages of medicine and a letter from Violette's doctor advising them to all take the powders inside to avoid contagion. After taking the medicine, her parents fell asleep and then awoke hours later to the smell of smoke. A curtain in their room had caught fire and filled the room with smoke. It was apparently an accident, but her parents were ill for a while afterward. The doctor said it was from smoke inhalation. Only a week later, Violette's doctor returned with more news. She was sick. For real, this time. Dr. Deron diagnosed Violette with syphilis. The doctor sympathized with Violette and told her that he would lie to her parents for her and tell them that the syphilis must have been hereditary for she was still a virgin. This was a godsend for Violette, particularly as her parents accepted the explanation, and especially since it put her in contact with the doctor's younger sister, Janine, a.k.a. Violette's new excuse to get out of the house. She knew her parents would never object to her hanging out with the sister of a respected medical professional, so she used the excuse to get out whenever she could. On June 30th, this excuse led her to meet a 20-year-old law student named Jean Daban. According to her, Daban was the only man she ever truly loved. Daban came from a wealthier family than Violette's, but was still having money problems, so she began to help him out by paying for their hotel room when they met, and then eventually began to just give him money. Towards the end of the summer, Violette purchased some rat poison. After learning how excruciating it is to ingest the stuff, she scrapped the plan and then purchased two tubes of Solmenol from a med student. Solmenol, like Veronol, is a barbiturate-based sleeping pill. She then purchased a third tube of Solmenol from the pharmacy, as well as some harmless homeopathic salts. Violette decided that there was only one way out of her predicament. The only way for her to live her life, 
as if her parents were no longer living theirs. On August 21st, 1933, Violette's parents searched through her belongings to find out what she had been up to and with whom. They discovered love letters from her lover, Jean de Bonne. When Violette returned home, her parents demanded to know who the boy in the letters was. Her father, Baptiste, was keen on throwing her out of the home entirely, but then she told her parents the boy was a law student. Surely their daughter couldn't do better than to marry a future lawyer. She would be set for life if this were the case. Her parents then began to rethink things and decided that if the two were really in love and wanted to marry, the Noziers could spare 50-60,000 francs for a dowry. That is what they wanted from her, after all. They asked her to write to Dabin, asking him to explain his intentions to her parents, her father told her that she would have to be honest with the boy and his family about her illness if she was serious about marrying him. She would have to tell him that she was diagnosed with a venereal disease. Violette agreed with her parents, and the evening continued as usual. They dined together, and then Violette played cards with her father before bed. The Nozier's apartment, along with most others in Paris, was cramped and claustrophobic. Parisian apartments were notoriously tiny. The Nozier's apartment consisted of two rooms, with a closet-like space that served as a kitchen and bathroom in the center. One of the rooms belonged to her parents, and the other was a dining room. Violette did not have a room of her own. Like many others in her apartment building, Violette slept on a cot that had to be set out each night in the dining room after the table had been shoved to the side. Just before bed, Violette pulled out the three packages of medication and handed them to her parents with a note from Dr. Deron, which was actually penned by Violette. Her mom, Germaine, had written to the doctor informing them of headaches they were suffering. The doctor thought it was an effect of the smoke inhalation, but he wanted them to take the medication so that he could confirm his diagnosis was correct. He wanted Violette to take the package marked with a cross on the bottom because it would help with her sinuses. Violette downed hers, wincing. Taste this, maman. My powder is awful. Germaine did not want to take the medicine, but her daughter egged her on. Come on, you're not very brave. Are you afraid I'm trying to poison you? Germaine put the glass to her lips and then began to drink. She could only drink half of it, the taste was so terrible. Baptiste, sitting on the edge of his daughter's folding cot, downed his medicine, and then moments later fell backward. Germaine shouted, Papa, what's wrong? and threw herself towards her husband, finding that she, too, was having trouble staying upright. Germaine collapsed beside her husband. Violette left her parents on her cot and went into their bedroom, where she stayed about two hours before leaving the apartment. Before leaving, she stole 3,000 francs and then looked in on her parents. 
to her relief, she found that neither of them were moaning or visibly suffering. She closed the door to the apartment at 9 Rue de Madagascar and walked out onto the streets of Paris. Violette went for a long walk before checking into a hotel for the night. She met her friend Madeline the next morning and discussed plans to go out that night. Madeline thought it was a good idea, though commented that Violette wouldn't be able to go to the opera in what she was wearing, just a blue dress and a sports coat. Violette replied that she would borrow some clothes from her aunt, and the two bid each other goodbye. There was no aunt. Violette went shopping. With her stolen money, she purchased a long black evening gown and matching black gloves and beret. She also picked up a gray jacket and some costume jewelry. Before meeting Madeline, she sent a cable to her parents' home, letting them know she wouldn't be home until late. She was all dressed up like Cinderella when she met back up with Madeline and headed for the famous La Café Coupeau for a warm drink before heading out for some fun and dancing. At around ten, the girls were spotted by two men in a fancy automobile. They were Egyptians, diplomats, they said through their broken French. They drove the girls to several restaurants and then to a famous Montmartre nightclub, Bal Tabarin. It was about one in the morning when Violette said she had to go home because she had a trip the next morning. The guys drove her back to the 12th arrondissement, and she stepped out of the auto and walked back up to the Nozier apartment at 9 Rue de Madagascar. Without turning on the light, Violette walked straight into the kitchen and turned on the stove burners. She walked back out into the hallway and waited for the smell of gas, before running to her neighbor. She was hysterical and going on about how she had just arrived home and entered the apartment to find her parents had committed suicide. The neighbor summoned the authorities, and before long the Nozier apartment was swarming with police and firemen. Germaine Nozier was lying alone on the bed in the room she shared with Baptiste. She was not dead, as first feared, and was quickly transported to the hospital. Inspectors noticed that both beds had been undone, both the one in the bedroom and the cot in the dining room. Blood soaked through the cot's sheets and pillows and was even splattered on the wall and the floor beside the bed. One inspector located the Nozier's expense book and found entries for August 21st, but not for the 22nd. Inspectors later put the puzzle together. Germaine claimed that after she took the medicine and collapsed towards her husband on the cot, she couldn't remember anything more. But she had actually been able to help Baptiste remove his pants and shoes to be more comfortable in bed. Germaine told Violette to go get in the other bed, where she joined her, but then got up after a bit to go check on Baptiste again. It was likely at this point, when she was groggy from the medication herself, that Germaine fell and received a four-centimeter gash on her forehead. By this point, Violette was gone, and Germaine was too weak to help herself. It was all Germaine could do to drag herself back to bed. 
Violette, clearly a person of interest, was asked to go to the hospital where her mother was recovering. An investigator walked her in and then left her with the nurse for a moment while he entered Germaine's room to prepare her. And once he did so, Violette booked it. After waiting for several minutes to see the mother she had tried to kill, she suddenly looked up at the nurse and said, I'm leaving. I can leave, can't I? And then she was gone. For the next five days, Violette Nozier was front-page news. The parricide, the father killer, was on the run. For five days, the papers were filled with one question. Where is Violette Nozier? It was a nationwide manhunt, and yet this 18-year-old girl was hiding in plain sight, walking around the Latin Quarter doing what she always did. One night she spent with a musician from the French Caribbean, Another night, she visited him at a Montmartre club and then spent the next two nights in a hotel room by herself, though he was kind enough to pay for it. By day, she read of herself in the newspapers and sent the maid out with some money to buy her sanitary napkins, tweezers, and newspapers. Then she went to another neighborhood near the Eiffel Tower and hung out there until she met another man whom she spent the night with. She spent her last days in hiding in old Paris on the Champ de Mars, a military training ground first built by the king in the 1700s to train the military, and then later turned into a public garden. And here she was spotted by a young nobleman named Count André de Pinguet and his friend. The Count, like much of Paris, had considered himself an amateur sleuth when it came to the Nozier case, or the mystery at Rue de Madagascar, as it was first called. Thus, he recognized Violette when he saw her walking around the Champ de Mar. He confronted Violette and even asked if she was Violette Nozier, but she replied that luckily she wasn't. The Count didn't believe her, so he set a date with her for the following day, and then got to sleuthing, reading up on the mystery until he was positive that the woman he saw really was her. Then he contacted the police and let them know of his date with the murderer. Three policemen apprehended her as she walked up to Count André. She was surprised, but did not struggle as they let her into an automobile and took her to prison. Violette Nozier, the parricide, was the talk of France. Everyone knew who she was, and everyone was out for blood. She was perhaps the most famous and most hated woman in all of France by the time of her arrest. And yet things would only get far worse. She still had not told anyone why. Very few things were less taboo in France than parricide, the act of killing one's parent. They took a hard-line stance on the matter, there was virtually no excuse for a child to kill a parent in their eyes. It was just too unnatural to even comprehend. 
how could someone take the life of the one who gave you life? The general consensus was that you had to be a monster to do such a thing, and they didn't want to hear any excuses or reasons why. Back at the hospital, Violette's mother agreed. Her daughter was a monster. She had killed her husband and tried to kill her too. As far as Germaine was concerned, she no longer had a daughter either. Violette still had not seen her mother. When she was apprehended, the inspector in charge of the case, Marcel Guillaume, called for Judge Lenoir to arrive. As Guillaume had already issued a warrant for her arrest, his job was complete and he had to follow French law and turn the case over to the judge. But the inspector had spent so much time on the case already, he wanted to talk to Violette. Technically, only the judge was allowed to interview her at this point, but Guillaume didn't see any harm in talking to the girl, so he asked her why she did it. What's the point of explaining? Violette said. I'm guilty, I admit it, leave me alone. He asked again. Why? Why poison your mom and dad? That's not true, she interjected. I did not want to poison my mother. Violette then began crying. Feeling bad for her, Inspector Guillaume softened. Talk to me frankly, he said. Like an old friend, try to tell the truth. I'll help you. You'll see, kid. It feels good to confide in someone. Between sobs, Violette responded that he wouldn't believe her even if she told him. I assure you that I believe at this moment you are incapable of lying, he said. Reassured, Violette began. She had to kill her father because he was sexually abusing her. For years, her dad had abused her and forced her to have sex with him against her will. It was the only way to make it stop, she explained. Violette said it all began when she was 12 and her mom left the home to run an errand, leaving her home alone with Baptiste. He started touching me with his finger, she said. He took me the first time one morning when I went to his bed to say good morning. She said she was too surprised to resist, and then it kept happening. For years. When she became older, she realized how terrible the situation truly was. Quote, there was no teacher who took any special interest in me, and I had no intimate friend. I had no close relatives living in Paris. End quote. She claimed that her mother never knew and never said anything to her. At least if she did suspect something was amiss, she never said anything or acted on it. The reason I said nothing to my mother is that my father had convinced me I was guilty as he was. He told Violette that if she ever told anyone, he would kill her and then kill himself. Eventually, Judge Lenoir arrived and ended the conversation, but it was out in the open and the press pounced. Not only did the newspapers disbelieve Violette, but they expressed outright indignation. They called her story odious and an abominable lie, and wrote that it was all just an excuse when all Violette really cared about was the money or being able to vive sa vie, live her life. She was selfish and spoiled, and not only had she murdered her own father, she disgraced his memory on top of it. 
I told you that very few things were more taboo in France than parasite. Well, incest was one of them, and now both of these taboos filled Parisian newspapers, though in hints only since incest was such a taboo the word could not even be printed, nor was rape. The public was so outraged that Violette arrived at the prison to hear people crying out for her death. But with the accusation made, the authorities were forced to respond. Investigators reached out to anyone who knew Violette to see if she had confided the secret of her father's abuse to anyone. Many women who are sexually abused, particularly those by an intimate relative, choose to keep it a secret out of shame or fear or confusion, or for the same reason Violette said she kept quiet, because it would destroy their families. But Violette did confide her secret to others. Pierre Camus, Violette's first boyfriend, explained that she once broke down and confessed that, quote, sometimes my father forgets that I am his daughter, end quote. She didn't say much more than that, and Camus was left with the impression that her father was trying to start something with her, but had not yet acted on it. Her other Latin Quarter friends were interviewed, and though all agreed that Violette was an odd girl who told crazy stories about her life, they ultimately corroborated her claims. Amy Tessier said Violette confessed her dad, violente her, in other words, used violence or abused her. Jean Leblanc, Violette's ex-boyfriend, said that she actually used the word rape when describing her father's actions. Leblanc was tired of Violette at this point and grew angry at her, thinking it was just another one of her lies. He told their friend Tessier, It was not the first time she mentioned it, but this time she was much too specific. Leblanc said he felt sickened by her lie and slapped her after she said it, and ended their relationship. But no one's testimony was as damning as Violette's, even as she recounted events in a detached manner. She spoke in a, quote, strange sort of objectivity, end quote, Maza wrote, explaining what happened to her as though she were reading off a shopping list, even when what she was explaining was the most graphic and terrible thing you had ever heard. Of course, some interpreted this as a sign of her guilt, of her monstrous personality, of her being completely void of shame. And for others, it was a sign of her innocence. She told investigators everything that had happened to her and in such great detail that it was hard to believe she could have made it all up. Her story never changed and she never contradicted herself. All of her details and explanations matched and made sense like when she described her father's body and all its marks and scars in full detail. The Nozier home was also searched. Investigators found porn in the home, along with a notebook filled with hand-drawn porno and such. Parisians of 1930 didn't exactly know about things like sexual repression, so for them it was a point in Violette's favor— 
The logic was that if Baptiste had porn, then he couldn't have been the upstanding man he claimed to be. Violette told police she knew about her dad's porn stash because he had forced her to bring them to him and look at them together. But really, it was these small details, these little things that Violette noticed and said that no one would even begin to think of. It was seeming more and more implausible that she would be able to make up such things. In perhaps the strongest condemnation of her father, Violette claimed, quote, In order to avoid making me pregnant, my father would withdraw from me and ejaculate in rags that he hid in the corner at the back of his room near a red suitcase right beside his fishing gear. End quote. When police visited the apartment and looked where Violette told them to, they found exactly what Violette told them they would find, a blue rag cut from a men's shirt. Forensic analysis proved that the stains on the rag were semen. Even in the face of this evidence, the public still did not want to believe Violette. Even papers that were on the more sympathetic side, as in not calling her an abominable liar and calling for her death, still expressed doubt. Le Petit Parisien wrote, It is easy to see that everything she asserts is both entirely possible and completely unverifiable. End quote. Entirely possible because the sexual molestation of little girls was, according to Maza, quote, an extremely common offense for most of the Third Republic. It was the single most frequent crime against persons between 1871 and 1940, a full third of such felonies, end quote. One-third of all felonies in France for 70 years were little girls being molested. Maza goes on to say that nine out of ten victims were girls under the age of 15. And we all know that girls being molested don't like to talk about such things to begin with. Violette was 12 when the abuse started, and she endured it for six years. It is no coincidence that all of Violette's troubles also began at this exact age. Her shoplifting began then, as did her many various illnesses that everyone said was just psychosomatic, all in her mind. Her terrible menstrual cramps and fainting spells, her stomach aches, all that physical pain she experienced was not a lie. It was not made up. This was all Violette trying to express very real pain that no one was taking seriously. Maza says that it also explains her early interest in boys and sex by speculating that Violette was seeking comfort and safety from men in the only way she knew how. Her promiscuity, Maza says, was her, quote, seeking endless reassurance from men to counter what must have been a dismal sense of herself, 
end quote. This is also the reason for all her lies, or her family fantasies, as Maza calls them. She believed that Violette's tall tales about her life and family were a form of dissociative behavior. She couldn't bear the reality of her family, so she invented a new one for herself in her mind. Violette's behavior is exactly what you would expect to see in a young woman who had grown up being sexually abused by her father. Let us not forget her suicide attempts. At the time, they were explained away as another one of Violette's crazy lies, just attention-seeking behavior. It was, in fact, Violette turning her pain and her rage inward. She expressed a wish to die because she could no longer tolerate her father. She only turned this rage outward and directed it toward her father when she fell in love with Jean Daban. Quote, Only when the relationship with Jean Daban gave her a sense, however illusory, of being loved, was she able to turn her rage fully outward, Maza wrote. And this was the breaking point for her. Up until then, Violette could envision different futures for herself, perhaps dreaming of a life away from her father. Because when her parents discovered Jean de Bon's letters, it was actually not the first time her father knew of him. He had discovered the letters by himself earlier and had already confronted Violette about it. He told her, in no uncertain terms, that she would never be able to escape him. Violette told him that she had fallen in love and wanted to stop having sex with him. Her dad responded that he would allow her to be Debon's mistress, but he would never let her marry. This was why, when Germain let her saw the letters too and confronted their daughter, Baptiste insisted that she could only marry Debon so long as she was honest about her syphilis diagnosis. He knew there was no way that Devon's family would allow him to marry a woman with syphilis. It was at this point that Violette realized if she wanted freedom, she would have to get it for herself. Her dad would never let her go. The only way out was death. And now she decided it was better that he die than her. Her mother disagreed. She heard Violette's accusation and called her a liar. She gave an interview in September saying, quote, The truth is that she wanted to kill us to get money, to live her life, as all the girls put it now. End quote. She painted her daughter as a spoiled brat and denied all allegations that her husband had been improper with her. As for the rag Violette described, Germaine said that Violette knew about it because she was a snoop and always in her business and going through her things. They had a minuscule apartment, after all. Germaine said it was the rag that she used with her husband while they were having sex. 
When Judge Lenoir finally staged his confrontation at the hospital between Violette and her mother, it was every bit as dramatic as he expected. As soon as Violette entered the room and took a seat, her mother began to shout at her, asking her why she had done it. The scribe was trying to capture every word, but they argued so quickly he only managed to collect bits and pieces. Violette shrank in her seat as her mom told her that she would never forgive her. "'You would have done better to kill yourself,' she told Violette. "'I promised these gentlemen that I would live until you were judged.' Violette was sobbing and collapsed to the floor before someone helped prop her back up. Newspapers the next day quoted Germain. "'You killed your father. You killed my husband. Kill yourself!' I'll forgive you after you've been judged when you're dead. Then there was, Violette, you killed your father. Such a good man, you killed him. Germain cursed her for making such accusations about him and then instructed her to kill herself. Again. Kill yourself. I'll never forgive you. Never. Violette begged her mother to stop. Forgive me, maman, forgive me, she shouted. Germain responded, No, never. And then, in a twist no one expected, Germain Nozier entered the case as a parti civil, or a plaintiff, in order to prosecute her own child. As everyone knew, the penalty for parricide is death. And with Germain seeking death for her own daughter, she had a lot of backing from the Communist Party, as Baptiste had been an active member of the Communist Party Union, which, of course, had been pushing Germain to enter the case. The Communists were eager to pin the crime on Violette. They argued she didn't act alone— she acted with the help of her bourgeois lover, Jean de Bon, who was soon to become the second most hated person in France for a time. Some papers even suggested that de Bon had hypnotized Violette into murdering her father, a la Gabrielle Bompierre, from episodes 42 and 43. The press was silent on the incest, and Judge Lenoir had recruited a bunch of specialists to prove that all of Violette's illnesses were imaginary, except for her syphilis. For those who thought Violette was lying, their biggest piece of evidence was the fact that Violette was diagnosed with the illness when Baptiste was not. Had he really been having sex with her for six years, he also should have contracted it but didn't. And so, for many, this was proof that she was a liar. The problem is that Violette was diagnosed with what is called the Wasserman reaction. This is an antigen test that has since been declared unreliable, since it gives so many false positives, particularly for those who also have another illness, like tuberculosis, which Violette had contracted in the past. The Wasserman reaction test was eventually discontinued. It's likely that Violette never had syphilis at all. But they didn't know this then. 
Then, Violette was, as one man wrote in, a lazy slut. Quote, Send that creature to the guillotine. Neither the workers nor the bourgeois want to keep feeding that bitch. End quote. Sarah Maza spends a lot of time explaining the difference between a scandal and an affair. A scandal, she says, helps to reaffirm a society's norms. A society is scandalized, and then they take steps to reassert the norm. An affair is different because it divides the community rather than uniting it in outrage. Many people did call this case an affair, or to be more specific, THE affair, as in comparing it to this spectacle that was the Dreyfus affair, just because so many people were talking about Violette. But Maza argues that the Nozier case was neither a scandal nor an affair, because there were no neatly divided camps in this case. It was not a scandal because no one could tell who the true villain was, nor was it an affair because she had very few defenders. Violette's supporters consisted of women, some women, and artists. Some artists. As tended to happen with famous historical murders, the case of Violette Nozier was turned into several murder ballads, though these were all pretty hostile towards her and romanticized her guilt, of which they were certain. They all end with a lesson in morality. Don't be a slut and listen to your parents. The Surrealists felt otherwise. Surrealism was an art movement that began in Europe after World War I that was interested in psychology and the unconscious. But the artists often thought of themselves as revolutionaries, many of them describing themselves as anarchists or communists. The most famous surrealist you've probably heard of is Salvador Dali, with his famous melting clock painting, The Persistence of Memory, completed only several years before Violette's crime. Dolly joined in on the surrealist discussion of Violette with his work, Paranoid Portrait of Violette Nozier. I don't even know how to describe this painting to you, so just Google it. Yeah, it's just too weird. The surrealist leader André Breton believed Violette when she said her father was guilty, he was into psychology and Freud and the unconscious. He knew what lurked in the subconscious of people's minds, and he was certain of Violette's innocence. Quote, In human memory, Breton defended her, no criminal case will have dragged out of the wings such a fine collection of bastards. Breton convinced 15 prominent surrealists to create art for a book dedicated to Violette. The work, titled Violette Nozier, was published on the 1st of December 1933, and it was promptly banned. France loved to do that. The book featured one word over and over that the authorities did not want printed. Rape. 
what Baptiste did to Violette was rape. The Surrealists wrote what no one dared to say in one poem. Daddy, little daddy, you are hurting me, she said. But the daddy feeling the heat of his locomotive, a little south of his belly button, raped Violette in the garden bower amid the shovel handles that fired him up. The most famous poem in the book was written by Paul Eluard. Violette dreamt of milky baths, of gorgeous gowns of fresh bread, of gorgeous gowns of pure blood. One day there will be no more fathers. In the garden of youth there will be strangers, all the strangers, men for whom you are always brand new, and the very first. Men for whom you can escape from yourself. Men for whom you are nobody's daughter. Violette dreamt of undoing and undid the hideous viper's knot of blood connections. These poems, Maza says, were a howl of anger at Baptiste and Germain Nozier and all the parents like them all the bastards. Violette's crime itself was a howl. We cannot call the work feminist because it was not, and feminism did not even exist as such at the time, but it does seem like a sort of proto-feminism, their efforts to see a woman whom society refused to hear. The Surrealists saw the lost generation, and they raised before them an invisible generation, the abused little girls of France whom no one saw or heard. Cesare Moro contributed his poem, How many good mothers and how many bad fathers, and how many good fathers and bad mothers, gathered in the name of bourgeois morality, will call you slut and whore, Violette. Still, the Surrealists recognized how few of them felt as they did. The Belgian artist Messon wrote, There are few of us, Violette, but we will walk hand in hand with our own ghosts, to terrify the men who judge you. Benjamin Perret did not stop at Violette's father. He came for her mother, too, whom he saw as complicit in her husband's crimes. All the fathers dressed in red to indict, or in black to pretend to defend, have been set upon her. Because they are the fathers, they who rape, beside the mothers, who defend their memory. Violette's other supporters were the many women who had experienced the type of abuse she had. These women knew the truth deep in their bones. One woman who was sexually abused by her father growing up and was disbelieved by her mother wrote to Judge Lenoir begging him to believe Violette. I beg of you with all my heart, sir, to believe that poor child who is hated by all of Paris, and I hope that my courage will bring her good luck, for I am fifty years old 
and I am still ashamed to have had such a father. I ask you to publish this letter in the newspapers, and I beg women who have gone through what I have to do as I am doing. I beseech you to take pity on that child. If she fainted in front of her mother, she must really love her. This was never published, of course. Women from all over France wrote in to say that they too had experienced such trauma. They too tried to keep it all a secret, and they too were disbelieved if the truth ever came to light. And most of the men doing the abusing were considered upstanding citizens in their community. A man's reputation had little to do with his behavior in the home. One woman wrote in of a father who keeps trying to attack the 80-something grandmother from a bourgeois family. Quote, This man is a ministerial officer and legal professional held in the highest esteem. End quote. Some women wrote of their experiences like Violette's when they tried to tell their mothers the truth about their fathers, only to have them curse and condemn them. One woman remembered her mother wishing her dead and calling her a liar and a pervert. Other women were more pointed in their criticisms of Germaine. She is so cruel to her child, I need to let her know what I suffered and what her child might be suffering. Madame, if your child really went through this torture, it is horrible. Forgive her, protect her. She has suffered enough. This is an unhappy mother and grandmother begging you. One man also rode in in defense of Violette. He happened to be from the same village as Germaine, Neuvy, where the entire Nozier family, including Violette, used to visit frequently. Violette's lawyer received a letter from the man saying he had gone to pee behind a bush once, years before, and had caught Violette and her father together. Baptiste begged him to say nothing, so he did. The other big mystery in the case that all of France was eager to join in on was the mystery of Monsieur Emile. Early on, questions swirled about where Violette got all her clothing and money, arguing that what she had taken from her parents was not enough to cover all of her expenses in the months leading up to the murder. Violette explained that she had a benefactor, an older man in his sixties named Monsieur Emile, a wealthy industrialist. She said the relationship was platonic, as she never slept with him. Instead, they met and dined together frequently, with him giving her 1,500 to 2,000 francs a month. This was a shock to all, and many didn't believe her, but all of the details Violette gave regarding the man and the places she had met him, and even the menu they ate on those particular days, were all followed up and confirmed. Jean Daban, Violette's once love, later confirmed that Violette was telling the truth about Emile's existence, before Jean Daban died of a fever still in his twenties. Whoever the man Emile was, if true, it confirmed what Violette said about not killing her father for his money. 
money wasn't her motive. She got money elsewhere. In speculating the identity of Monsieur Emile, people theorize that perhaps this old man with money but no interest in romance was actually Violette's real father. Violette had once said that her father told her that what they were doing was okay because he wasn't really her father, reminding her that Germain had already been heavily pregnant when he married her. In November of 1933, a Parisian man in his 60s killed himself by jumping off of a cliff with an open umbrella. No word on if he was trying to fly or what the deal was, but his name was Emile, Emile Violette. The papers went wild with speculation that this was the mysterious benefactor Monsieur Emile, this must have been Violette's real father, who had kept tabs on her. Of course, there were many men suspected of being Emile, and none of them were confirmed as Violette's father. This is mostly because the police were completely uninterested in finding Monsieur Emile. Why hunt down a man and ruin his reputation, when they were all men with reputations easily ruined, too. Emile was never identified. Incest was not mentioned in the trial. Too taboo. Of course, the defense tried to bring it up, but none of it was mentioned in the papers. Not surprisingly, the trial concluded with a guilty verdict— Remember, the penalty for premeditated murder with no extenuating circumstances was the guillotine, the old head chop. Violette was found guilty of parricide with no attenuating circumstances. The vote, by a jury of Baptiste's peers rather than Violette's, had found her guilty, unanimously. Her lawyer was trying to get Violette to sign a paper for an appeal, but upon hearing the verdict, she lost it. No, leave me alone, she screamed. Violette was flailing and trying to fight off the guards. You're a bunch of bastards. You have no shame. You're without pity. I told the truth. To hell with my father. To hell with my mother. Violette had to wait two and a half months before receiving what all of France expected, a commutation. Sure, the jurors were certain of her guilt, as most of France was, but that still didn't mean they liked sending women to their deaths. An example had to be made of women who misbehave, but that didn't mean they necessarily needed to die. On Christmas Eve of 1934, the president commuted her sentence to life in prison, and she was sent to a female long-term correctional facility. In August of 1942, her sentence was reduced from life to 12 years. Violette experienced what Maza called a Catholic rebirth in prison, turning to religion as a means of turning her life around. Even Germain managed to make peace with Violette, and she later became a symbol of redemption for many. While incarcerated, Violette met her future husband, Pierre. 
Like her mother, she was pregnant when she married, and the couple ultimately had five children, further shedding doubt on Violette's syphilis diagnosis. Doctors argued that it wasn't likely for her to be both infected and give birth successfully so many times. Violette worked as a secretary for some time, and then the couple ran a cafe together, though not in Paris where they would be recognized. Her husband died in 1961. Violette died in 1966 at the age of 51. She had a breast removed after being diagnosed with cancer. As terrible as her childhood had been, Violette at least died at home with her children and her mother, Germaine, by her side. Inspector Guillaume, who had Violette arrested and was the first to hear her accusation, was never questioned during the trial. Guillaume was one of the few who believed Violette, and this is likely why he was never asked about the case in court. He did publish a memoir, though, in the Paris Soir newspaper. The inspector, once the most famous detective in France, was so well known and well admired that his writings on the case convinced a few to talk about starting a new trial for Violette. Quote, there are cries from the heart that cannot be mistaken. I heard one of those on the evening of August 28. End quote. The cry Guillaume heard from Violette that evening was a howl of pain, a howl that the invisible generation of Paris recognized all too well. You've just finished episode 50, unfortunately the last of the season, but I do plan on being back with season 4, so check on us for updates. Just another reminder that we are on Patreon now. If you would also like to support us, head to patreon.com slash oldbloodpodcast. The most recent season is still available to all, but all the older ones are now on Patreon for subscribers. And please keep the reviews coming if you enjoyed the show. As always, check our show notes for a list of our sources, or head to oldbloodpodcast.com. Photos and more information about the case will be posted on our Instagram, so find us there by searching for Old Blood Podcast. Music credits to Facilian Studios. Yeah!